1985 Rolling Stone review of the Smiths' second studio album describes Morrissey as a man on a mission, a brooding crusader with an arsenal of personal axes to grind. Drawing on British literary and cinematic traditions, Morrissey speaks out for the protection of the innocent, railing against human cruelties in all its guises. A 2020 Pitchfork review of Morrissey's I Am Not a Dog on a Chain album notes, once known for perverting pop music by way of a beautiful, excessive, and unsmiling universe of both art and devotee, Morrissey's vistas have since shrunk. His present fan base survived by the morose, the nostalgic, the unaware, a large number of Latinxes, and those who have actively chosen to forego Morrissey the man for Morrissey the feeling. There is no single word more heavily contested in the music industry than the three syllables that make up Morrissey's name. There are bigger one-name artists and hotter one-word topics, but nothing sparks more passion and vitriol than that of Manchester's most infamous crooner. Morrissey in the current day reflects one of society's greatest issues. There is no middle ground. His deeply personal connection with his fan base has led to the creation of songs like The Ergs Introducing Morrissey and Tiger's Jaws My Friend Morrissey, while his detractors have an anthem of their own in JPEG Mafia's 2018 release, I Cannot Fucking Wait Until Morrissey Dies. 1994 marked objective success for the ex-Smiths frontman. Critical acclaim and global commercial success came from Morrissey's fourth studio album, Vauxhall and I. It's an album of growth, an album of despair, and an album of maturation. But above all else, Vauxhall and I is an art school album. Today's episode of the Art School Albums Podcast is discussing the artist that I find most fascinating in the world. There is no other artist that I would rather sit down and talk about, and there is no other person that I would rather sit down and talk about that person with. My guest today is the good doctor, Dr. Keith Lipinski. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for having me on the show and getting me away from my kids. I really, really appreciate this more than you ever know. And boy, we have a humdivvy of a topic this week with uh, Morrissey. Uh, yeah, it's uh, talking about Morrissey in 2020 is, uh, you know, you could basically write a novel about the pain and woe, even more pain and woe of being a Morrissey fan now than it was back in the day. But we're going to talk about uh, later on, we're going to talk about what I think is his most essential album, the 1994 classic Vauxhall and I. But definitely, thanks for having me on, even though technically this isn't an art school album and you know it, Case. Oh, I think anything in the Morrissey Smiths category. I mean, my freshman year of college, two years ago, mind you, but my freshman year of college, Vauxhall and I is what I played more than any other album. It's something that I hold so near and dear to my heart, and I was especially careful starting this podcast not to do a Morrissey slash Smiths episode so soon into the program because um, I wear my Morrissey fandom on my sleeve even today, which is dangerous. I wouldn't mm -hmm. recommend it, but it's it's something that people associate me with. So so let's paint the picture for those uh, that maybe don't understand why there is still a gross obsession with this man. Being a Morrissey fan in 2020, Keith, what is it like for you? Uh, last year, I over the course of 
a month and a half, I saw Screeching Weasel and I saw Morrissey uh, within, you know, within a few week time frame. I remember talking to a friend of mine about it and he looks at me and said, wow, you really like the most problematic artist, don't you? <laughs> and it was sort of like, oh, yeah, uh, it's it's always been difficult being a Morrissey fan. I mean, I've been a Morrissey fan now, uh, probably before you were born, which really is dating me. But like, I've been a Morrissey fan probably since 1992, which is you know when I first discovered him playing on a street corner, and then I got him some rockabilly guys, and then they recorded your arsenal. Uh, but I've been a Morrissey fan for a long time, and back then the stigma of being a Morrissey fan was, oh, he's so whiny, oh, he's so complaining. So already there was a stigma back then about it there was the whole questions about sexuality which i never really cared about but it that that also was out there i mean i, I don't know if you remember case the wonderful series the uh, another one before your time the mystery science theater 3000 they once had a morrissey impersonator on there who mentioned multiple times have i mentioned i cried have i mentioned <laughs> i cried which was you know basically that was the thought of being a morrissey fan in the mid 90s was here was a very sensitive crying gentleman who sang very sad and at times maudlin songs however being a morrissey fan we flash forward now my god way too many years because i don't feel like doing the math we flash forward 26 years from now and now being a morrissey fan is sort of a well you know his he said some things, you know, he's done some things like in 94. The biggest problematic piece that he had was the fact that he played this uh, uh, Matt Stock, this the rock band, Matt, uh, the ska punk band. I don't really like to call him ska punk. Let's just call him ska band. Madness played a festival uh, like they, they would headline and Morrissey played. And this was during the glamorous glue era, era and Morrissey is wearing this very nice gold lame shirt, like a shirt where case. I don't think you and I could pull it off, but Morrissey. Absolutely. I would he could like pull to be able to pull it off, but you're right. I can't pull it off. I, I don't think I could. I don't think it would be possible. I would think possibly because I would look sort of like an old school thing of jiffy pop popcorn you know <laughs> like where it would just not look very good it would not be very flattering for me but during that show at one point he was parading around with a union jack flag and people took great great offense especially all the many skinheads who were there to hear the band uh who was who did one more song than our house all right let's let's man let's 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 call a spade a spade madness fine band one step beyond a great song but it's it's i i, I the fact that they were able to headline a British festival tells you all you need to know about their fan base. So anyway, that was the big stigma. We're like, oh, Morrissey's going around with a flag. Is Morris? And then there was, is Morrissey racist due to the, you know, the panic on the streets of London, the fact that, you know, it wasn't him saying burn down the discos, I, I, even though that's the, the lyric that's on there. So there's always been problematic connotations about being a Morrissey fan. This is, this is, this is a plight that every Morrissey fan has had to go through since day one of Morrisseyhood. However, in the last few years, there's been times where stuff happens where it's sort of like, okay, he's wearing this problematic political pin on the Jimmy Kimmel show. No, or not, I'm sorry, Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, he I would really not go did. on Kimmel, not after the Duck Dynasty incident. No, I, he was very upset about that. You're absolutely right. I, I, I mixed up my Jimmy's and I, I apologize well, how for dare that. You? I'm really that, that this this won't be edited, of course. So no, that's what of course makes, not. That's what makes it even better. Old school punk rock. Oi, oi, oi. Anyway. So anyway, he, he has this pin on there. It's just he's he's become even more problematic because much like us and even you, young boy, case 
he's gotten older during times. And the problem is maybe he's too sequestered in his nice villa or estate somewhere where maybe he's just spending too much time inside his head. I mean, there, there, there's a laundry list of reasons why it's problematic being a Morrissey fan. The problem is, as the years have gone by, the problems have gotten bigger and bigger, where it's sort of like you can't really defend Morrissey at times when it comes to some of the things that he said during the ages where it's just sort of like, oh, my God, like, you know, we know he still hates Trump. You know, it's not that bad yet. We haven't gotten to that. I think if we were going to that, we would not be talking about that right now. We'd probably be talking about like a drive through records release from uh, 1999 or something like that. But, uh, yeah, it's 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 one of those things where being a Morrissey fan has never been easy but now more than ever it's just become harder and harder and it's sort of become the you know can i separate the art from the artist and thankfully when you listen to his songs i've been able to thankfully do that where i don't necessarily think about problematic things while listening to morrissey but at the same time that sort of the the black cloud that has always been about more around morrissey is still there keith i'm so glad you just gave me that monologue because one i feel closer to you just as a human because the the morrissey fans are so few and far between and the ones that really care you know you mentioning the Talk festival me being able to follow you there it was just it was a nice moment for me that i haven't wasted every hour of my life caring about these things that another person is on the same wavelength as me as me that was very nice and you you hit every point that i i would have made that you know, when Morrissey says something dumb now, which he does, and there's no defending it. I mean, I am I am greatly bothered by some of the stuff he says, but I am just as equally as bothered by the people that will tweet and text and even at times email me links to Morrissey saying awful things. I know he's saying these things. Trust me, I heard it before you did. I I don't have the Google alerts yet, but it's not that, you know, unrealistic for me to be surfing the web, refreshing every second to see what headline features his name next. But it's nice to know. Well, I, I'll say this. You know, I grew up a Morrissey fan. I discovered him around World Peace is None of Your Business. So we're talking 2014, 2015. I had a friend sit me down. He said, well, you obviously like the Smiths, right? I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. He played me How Soon Is Now. I said, this is awful. I don't want to hear this because at the time I was very into folk punk and like Jeffrey Lewis and like these anti-folk artists of just like very bare bones, stripped down. Like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what this sound is. I don't want it. Then he said, okay, well, at least give this song a shot. He played me this charming man and it completely changed my life. I mean, it is, it is a definitive moment in my history of like, holy shit, what are these sounds? Who is this guy? And that was my sophomore year of high school. And ever since then I have spiraled into a gross obsessive and now we hit this point in time where it's more so than ever unglamorous to be a Morrissey fan and rightfully so because if you are if you are jumping on that boat now I almost have to question it a little bit of like you know what what is is it the statements that you're you're liking this guy for is it the music like I it's tough for me to in these past two years if you're just now getting really into Morrissey like Kind of what's the deal with that? But even if there weren't the controversial statements, even if he wasn't wearing the pins he's wearing or saying the things he's doing, 
ultimately Morrissey is someone that is going to be criticized for simply existing. And that's not defending him. That's not sympathizing with his views. But to me, it seems like there is no other artist that people love to tear down more than Morrissey. It's been a consistent basis from from the get go. Like, you know, I, I remember mocking Morrissey the first time I saw him. Like my, my first big impact with Morrissey was uh, when uh, the music video for Tomorrow was part of the MTV's buzz bin. And that would have been in 1992. And it was something where, you know, I knew who the Smiths were, but I never really listened to the Smiths until I think it was, I was a freshman in college and I was driving to the sound warehouse to line up for tickets for smashing pumpkins. And it was like this was when people would go way too early in the morning and line up like like basically things where I'm going to tell my son about this one day and he won't understand any of the things I'm saying, especially the sound warehouse part, which was an OK record store. They mostly had loop gear. But anyway, uh, so anyway, I get in my car around six o'clock in the morning, turn it on and Q101 was playing How Soon Is Now. And that was like the first time that I was just like, whoa. So I remember getting Smashing Pumpkins tickets that day and also picking up Hatful of Hollow on Gazette. And since then, it's been something where I've always considered myself a huge Smiths fan and because of that, a, a very large Morrissey fan. What do you think about the people that say, I love the Smiths, but I either don't like Morrissey's solo work because of who Morrissey is or because they just for some reason don't like the sound of the solo work? Does that irk you? Because it bothers me. It, it, it does sort of bit because I think actually Morrissey has become a more interesting artist since, you know, breaking out and becoming solo. Like I, I, I will never say a, a ill word about the Smiths, but it was something where it'd be interesting if the Smiths did more than the albums, the output that they actually did to see where they would have gone next with the band. Obviously, that didn't happen. And so Morrissey had a solo career, but I think Morrissey has a had fantastic solo career. You look at all the albums that he's put out, the major hit singles. I mean, people forget that this was the biggest record that Morrissey had uh, the Vauxhall and I was the biggest record that Morrissey had in the States. Like uh, the more you ignore me, the closer I get was a bona fide American hit, you know, and Morrissey really didn't have the Smiths weren't known as big hit makers in America. You know, they were alternative music to say the least. I mean, they played the Oregon Chicago twice. You know, it wasn't something where they built up and, you know, it wasn't like Oasis. Like when I saw Oasis go from the Metro to like the Allstate Arena, like that's something where, you know, the Smiths were not Oasis. And, and rightfully so, because, you know, Oasis was two great records. But that, yeah, that's another just, story. Just two. They fall <laughs> off a cliff quick. I completely yes. wholeheartedly agree with your point about Morrissey as a solo artist being more interesting than the Smiths, because the Smiths have 72 songs and 60 of them, or roughly 60, are really good, if not great. Like, they are the Sandy Koufax of rock bands. They lasted for a short time, but their impact will be felt forever. And it's, you know, eventually there will be Smith's episodes of this podcast. It's another, you know, band I can obviously talk for a day about. But the Morrissey solo career and the peaks and valleys of it and this, you know, these peaks he had of really almost being a superstar at times in both the States and in England, mm -hmm. Viva Hate and Your Arsenal and Vauxhall are these classic albums. And then you have these weird records like Kill Uncle and Maladjusted that 
I would say are maybe underappreciated just as a whole. And then you have his career renaissance in the early 2000s with, you know, I, I just had on Years of Refusal or earlier today, and I am still blown away at how good Years of Refusal is. And Morrissey made that record when he was 50. And then yep. you have this past decade, which has been it feels like a free fall from grace. Any goodwill that he might have had, it feels like it slowly started to erode away, possibly due to the extensive canceled shows, canceled concerts, canceled entire tours, which, you know, it's an unfortunate aspect of things. But I also recognize that at least to some extent, Morrissey had health issues that was preventing him from being on the road. So it obviously sucks if you had tickets to those shows I am lucky that the two times I've been able to see Morrissey those shows happened and he was in a good mood and he played all the way through but this decade with world peace is none of your business and then the bad press it feels like uh, any goodwill he, he has built up over his 40 year career is gone at this point do you feel like there's a specific point in time where the tone around Morrissey definit- definitively changed for the worse I, I think it was probably in after uh, years of refusal. I think I think shortly after that because he did a few tours uh, after that, but it was something where getting Morrissey tickets was the ultimate gamble because it's something where you know I'm going to get these. I'm not ex- going to expect him to be at the show at all. Like I'm expecting the show to be canceled. I'm expecting something to happen. Him to have a cold. But then I think about shows that I've seen Morrissey in the past where he was not at his best. Like I think I saw a show once in the Riv at the Riviera uh, in 1997 where I think he played seven songs and like it definitely seemed like he was off voice. Like it definitely seemed like something was up there. So I would rather have Morrissey, you know, play me a fancy and sit there and say, sorry, I'm not going to do this show at all or not doing this tour at all. than go to a show and not have my half Morrissey. But I'll say it there and say that some of the best concerts I've ever seen have been his stuff. I think the last time and I, I, I believe you were there as well, Case, because we I took was. a nice, nice Mark photo together was uh, at the uh, at, at Ravinia uh, last summer. And it was I mean, it was magnificent, like when he is on as a performer, there is very little better than Morrissey. You know, he is just someone that just he just he 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 gets it. He gets it. He knows how to handle the crowd. The stage banter was all great. He didn't say anything problematic, which I know you and I both enjoyed a nice high five about. But uh, yeah, it's something where I think I think because of years of refusal being so good, and then World Peace was a, a an odd record. It was way too long, in my opinion. And then also it was just something where it seemed like during that time there was so much going on where it just seemed that it wasn't. Like it would be something where Morrissey's solo career sort of goes peaks and valleys. You know, he starts off pretty good with Stephen Street Connection in uh, Stephen Street producing Connection in the first record. You know, then the comp, and then you know, Kill Uncle has uh, Mute Witness, which I absolutely love. Other than that, it's a so-so record. Your Arsenal, you're getting up on that high point. Uh, right now, we're going to talk about the biggest high point that he had, of course, which was uh, Vauxhall and I. I thought Southpaw Grammar was a good record. The problem with it was he didn't really tour that much. Like the problem was he he released – he had a chance to sit there and be a big thing with Vauxhall and I, but he didn't tour. 
Like he basically did his promotion for this was doing uh, was doing like in stores at Tower Records like he did one in Chicago and he did one in New York and such. That was his they, they didn't tour because, you know, a few years prior, like your arsenal, it was a big, huge tour where he played like Poplar Creek in Chicago, like massive. It was a thing. Morrissey was on his way to become something. And if he would have done a little bit more during this record, I think he could have hit that next level, you know, but then Southpaw grammar happened, then maladjusted happened, which is sort of uh, going down this little bit. But then we come back a few years later with, of course, You Are the Quarry and then the ringleader of the Tormentors. So it's sort of like being a Morrissey fan and his musical output has been sort of like a roller coaster at times. The uh, I've seen Morrissey twice. I saw him on the Lowen High School tour in November 2017, and then I saw him last year at the Ravinia when you were in attendance. The anxiety I had from the moment I purchased the tickets for the November 2017 show to seeing him walk on the stage, it was probably a a two-month gap, and I have never felt prolonged anxiety about one single situation like I like I have before and I will hopefully never experience such an intense anxiety again because I was so afraid it's Chicago it's the winter it's cold it's right after Thanksgiving that might put him in a bad mood like there were so many reasons in my mind that he was not going to be there and I have not told you the story. I haven't told most people this story, but I will tell it on the podcast. Not that I'm proud of it, but just it's something that happened was I'm standing there at the Riv. Morrissey comes out and greets the audience. And I I felt emotion that I had truly never felt before and found myself crying a little bit at the sight of Morrissey, which I wasn't anticipating on doing. I wasn't expecting. Uh, the person I was with was embarrassed for me as I was embarrassed. I mean, it was it was <laughs> so strange, but I chalked up to like, if I go see, you know, a band like The Front Bottoms or a band like Touche Amore, like... I know I could be backstage with those guys and it would be very normal. They feel like even if I don't know them, like I could probably hang out with them. But there was something about Morrissey walking on stage where I was like, holy shit, that that is a legend in the flesh in front of me. And ultimately, why I continue to pay attention to Morrissey, why I think he still matters is that his live performances are incredible. I mean, there is mm-hmm. there is no one like him on stage, and I am at a point now where I really care more about his set list and what he's playing live than any new music he creates because his shows are for people like you and me. He could cash mm-hmm. in and do what The Cure does and play, you know, There Is A Light That Never Goes Out and How Soon Is Now and Suedehead and Panic and whatever other hit he could. I mean, he could put together a 22-set 22 uh, 22 song list that would trump anybody else's set list out there but Morrissey when we saw him uh, last year was playing Satan Rejected My Soul and he's got these new covers I mean he is a bizarre artist and I Mm -hmm. think we see uh, the foundation of what he would become of him completely divorcing himself from the Smiths and uh, entering and not just to steal the name of the compilation that would come out in 95 but we are entering the world of Morrissey in 1994 where he is now completely himself. He is comfortable in his own skin, and he is comfortable as a solo artist. But real quick, before we break down Vauxhall and I, you mentioned Tower Records. You mentioned that he did a promotional tour there. Keith, what is your Morrissey Tower Records story? 
Okay. So 1994, uh, he is going to be at Tower Records in Chicago, which was one of my favorite places of all time. Like it was, it was somewhere where as a, you know, a, a freshman in college that they didn't have any friends. I spent many a night going to the Tower Records because it was in a cool part of Chicago. You got free parking, beautiful magazine selection. I mean, it was just, it was, it was a heaven for me. Like all the audio and video needs that I could, I could enjoy. Like this was Tower Records was my favorite record store. And so they had a Morrissey did, did a thing there. I had tickets to see the Nine Inch Nails that night at the Riviera. So my thought was, okay, I'll get to, I'll get to Tower Records. I'll wait in line, meet Morrissey. I'll be able to get to the show. No problem at all. So I brought a, a Doctor Who novelization, started on page Very one cool. Very cool. as I got. Yes, the, the book, if you're wondering, if you're taking notes for the Keith Lipinski archive, it is was No Future by Paul Cornell, which was like a punk rock. Uh, the Seventh Doctor gets in punk rock. It, it's a long story. Anyway, it's 1994, kids. It was a much uh, – case one day I'll tell you about the 90s. It was Please, not a good time. I would love to know. <laughs> and about Sputnik and Woodstock. Uh, anyway – so I, anyway, I started this book and I was maybe the 40th person in line. Like there was a lot of people in line for this. So I just literally sat there and read a book waiting for Morrissey. Not though the book was not called Waiting for Morrissey, as I mentioned before. So anyway, uh, it's around four o'clock. The line now is around the block. So it's around the block on Belden all the way up to Clark Street. Like this is a huge line. This is an event, you know, and I'm talking to the people that are there and such. Uh and Morrissey isn't here yet. Okay, well, you know, maybe he's going to be there a little bit. Five o'clock, Morrissey still isn't here. Okay, well, I, you know, artists, you know, artists are problematic. It's not like he's ever going to say anything in the future that's going to make me really question my fandom. But uh, let's, you know, let's give it a little bit more. He finally shows up around 545, and I'm literally the 40th person in line. And all of a sudden, the line starts moving a little bit, and I'm getting excited. Like, I'm going up the staircase in like being able to see like the press, the media that are there to cover this, this worldwide event. Cause this isn't, this isn't like, you know, this, I mean, I think next to the smashing pumpkins, which is the second reference of my former boss on this show, which I apologize for, uh, uh, playing an acoustic set for XRT, the night Siamese dream came out. This was probably the, the biggest celebrity that they had there was, was Morrissey being there. So anyway, I I'm very close. I may be about 20 feet away from Morrissey. I'm literally about to get in the door to be one of the first five, next five people to get in there. Morrissey walks off and I'm like, oh, what do I do right now? It's around 710 and the Nine Inch Nails show started 10 minutes ago. But I, I knew it was Marilyn Manson, so I wasn't in a hurry to see that. But I'm like, oh my God, like what's gonna happen here? So I remember like just being like, oh, what can I do, what can I do? And I remember yelling to the crowd that was there, if someone in front of me switches their spot, they could have my Nine Inch Nails ticket. And all these people like sort of like looking at me like, hmm, maybe. <laughs> but no one, there were no offers there. Anyway, Morrissey came back, signed for three more people. I was the next person to get in the door. And then Morrissey walked off again and the signing was over. I then ran around Lincoln Park to the Lincoln Park Zoo parking lot, uh, changed into uh, shorts and drove maybe 100 miles per hour up to uh, 
to uh, what the heck's the Lawrence Avenue, uh, got to the Riv and got to see Nine Inch Nails second song. And that was probably one of the best shows I've ever seen in my life uh, was Nine Inch Nails that night. So I really wasn't that disappointed about me and Morrissey. I was just glad to sort of see him in his jean uh, jacket goodness. Keith, my heart breaks for you, uh, not only because you didn't get to meet Morrissey, but because you then had to sit through a Nine Inch Nails show. I can't imagine a worse punishment for somebody, but if you enjoyed it, more power to you, my friend. Uh, Not the band for me, but the person we're here to talk about, the album we're here to talk about, Vox Hall and I, Morrissey's 1994 release, came out on March 14th, 1994, and... In 11 songs and 39 minutes, Morrissey sculpted a masterpiece, and it begins with the opening track, Now My Heart Is Full. Rush to danger, wind up nowhere Patrick Doonan, race to wait I'm tired again, I tried again And now my heart is full What an opener. I mean, the guts he has to put this as the first song on the album. It immediately sets the tone for... I just I, I can't even imagine what's coming next if this is the song that opens the album. It's uh, to me, it's one of the best openers on any album. And I think it just sets the tone and sort of sets the table as it would for the rest of the album. I mean, when you're thinking about uh, his last record before this, Your Arsenal, which was produced by Mick Ronson, was a very heavy rock record. Like that's basically like a really good rock and roll record where it starts with gleaming guitars. This one seems very subdued but a lot more powerful in the music and the intent here. And it's, it's, it's just such a wonderful opening track, you know, just for him mentioning the people's names from the book and everything else. It's just, it's one of those, it's, it's a very powerful and gripping track. I remember hearing him play this at the Chicago theater in the year 2000 and just being incredibly blown away at just the magnificence of this song you know basically and like i said before sets a tale for the whole record where it's a little bit more subdued and a little bit more reflective without being very whiny you know like i i think it's it's just it's 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 i i think it's one of my my favorite morrissey songs period and i think it's just something where as soon as you hear like those first few minutes you just you know with the first line being there's going to be some trouble a whole house will need rebuilding. Like, oh my God, you put that in a, a Touche Amore song, like, and people would be going fucking crazy, man. It's it's such a powerful track. And you had just mentioned Mick Ronson, who, like you said, produced your arsenal. He had recently passed away, at least when Morrissey was making the album, he passed away, as did Morrissey's former manager. So we're, you know, before this album. And also Tim, remember Tim Board, who also directed a lot of his music yes, videos. Yes, yes, so yes. like he had he had three losses all within the time. So it that's I think the deaths that he had to deal with sort of bring the reflection in 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 the songs that we're going to hear here which is huge because a lot of Morrissey's melodrama and 
just the angst and sadness that surrounded him at this time, it's not fair to say it was manufactured, but he wasn't dealing with life and death situations. He hadn't been really face-to-face with fatality the way he had been. Now he's looking death in its eyes, and he's able to, to start an album with a song like this, and it's it's just mind-blowing. <laughs> The album transitions in a way, I I love the way every single song on this album is sequenced. I think it flows beautifully, and I think track two, Spring Heel Gym, is just a perfect example of, okay, now we're going to pick up the intensity, now we're going to pick up the the, uh, tempo a little bit. It's a great track, too, at least in my opinion. Keith, where do you stand on this? I think it's another great track. Uh, as we've been dealing with this COVID right now, uh, one of the things that has really given me great solace is riding a Peloton bike. And uh, I got the – my wife wanted a Peloton for Christmas. You know, I caved in and got it, but I've been using it probably a lot more than she has. But it's something where I think about this record in terms of a spinning class. <laughs> and it's something where now my heart is full is a wonderful, wonderful, you know, opening ride, a warm up for the ride, you know, and Spring Hill Gym is something where it's it's starting to get there. You're basically you're you're turning, the wheels are turning here. You know, it's it's a nice, a nice little song. It's a, it's a nice second opening track. Like I always I always like albums where like the first track is just whoa and the second track sort of you know a little bit more of a faster tempo but still like a a very very good song i can't tell you what it's about at all though you know i'm sure there's never been any books written about morrissey songs or anything (laughs) at all so it's it's another one of those where morrissey's singing about stuff and and morrissey just the content of his lyrics have influenced me so much especially musically, like through Morrissey, I've been able to discover Sandy Shaw and, uh, you know, even a band like the Smoking Popes. Like, I didn't know who they were until I found out they had opened for Morrissey. I was able to dive Shameful. into Elvis. Well, hey, Keith, remember, remember the yeah, I know, I know, here. I know. I'm yes, doing yes. what I can. Um, I, you know, dove into Elvis's discography all because of Morrissey, but even then he'll reference a f- an old British film that isn't The Taste of Honey because I watched A Taste of Honey because I want to know what Morrissey was talking about. But he'll, he'll reference an even deeper cut than that. I'm like, I, yeah, I, I don't know what this dude's talking about, but I, I like it. The band backing him here, it's Boz Bohr on guitar. It is Alan White on guitar. It is Johnny Bridgewood on bass. And the, and the bass in Spring Hill Gym is outstanding. And then it's Woody Taylor on drums. Now, everybody besides the drummer would go on to tour on the Boxers Tour in February of 95, which I ultimately think is Morrissey's best tour because he's basically touring Vauxhall and I plus the single Boxers, which is a tremendous song in my opinion. Uh, this, to me, is his best lineup with a backing band. This is who Morrissey should have been surrounding himself with, especially I think the loss of Alan White now is is very noticeable on everything that Alan White hasn't been a part of. I, I would agree with you. I think really this was an incredibly strong lineup that he had. I mean, I think Alan and Boz both were very good polar. You know, I think Boz and, and Alan White together – and then them also writing different songs for Morrissey definitely helped give him a little bit more flavor. 
you know, and I think Alan was definitely a definitive loss. Like I know recently he's been doing acoustic versions. Like I, I, I listened to him do a swallow on my neck, which is a, a fantastic B side. And like, it's just like, wow, like he, he got it. He was one of Morrissey's best writers. And even after he left the band, he was still writing stuff for Morrissey. Who's so, the one that helped compose Life as a Pigsty, which I think is a, one of the great masterpieces of all of music. And Alan hmm. White is is the unsung hero in the Morrissey lineage because people, and rightfully so, point to Morrissey and Marr as you know this dynamic duo. But as soon as Alan White left the Morrissey camp, and especially when he stopped contributing, that is where you saw Morrissey take a little bit more power in his image, take a little bit more control in the way he was presented. It is there that we see the band start wearing the matching outfits on stage, which I've never been a fan of. And the music just loses a little bit. And it's not a shot at, you know, any of his current musicians, which other than they're very good. They're 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 talented. They're talented Um, guys. Jeffy Tobias, I think, is is excellent at what he does. I I like uh, Matthew Walker, the current drummer. But there's there's something that Alan brought to the table, I think, both with the music and just the, you know, his songs speak for themselves, but it seems like he was on the short list of people that Morrissey would really listen to and would value his opinion. And his lack of presence in Morrissey's life is a shame because Alan is still very talented. I watched the acoustic version of Swallow on My Neck uh, this morning, actually, which we're kind of in, even outside of Oxhall, we're in this golden era of Morrissey where you have this album and then Boxers and then Sunny, which has the B-side Swallow on My Neck. And it's just a, a ridiculous stretch of music. And I think the, the following track, Billy Budd, is another one of those gems in the Morrissey collection. For me, this is a song that kind of, uh, I can use this to shut up the doubters that say Morrissey's soft and that he complains too much because Billy Budd is a very powerful, very rock heavy song. It's it, it very much is the touch on this record of past Morris of Morrissey's last record, Your Arsenal, where it's sort of a, a two minute song uh, that that rocks uh, an Alan White composition. So, yeah, it's 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 a great song. It's just a, a flat out, just a great like, you know, like very much, you know, I don't want to say the Judy is a punk of Morrissey's canon, because, of course, we know Morrissey covered that on one of his last tours. But at the same time, like it's it's just a straight up rock song. And it's 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 a he does a fine job with it. One of the things that I've tried to put to bed for my generation is that idea that and more so the Smiths, just because their name has more cachet than Morrissey does. I know a lot of people that know the Smiths that don't know who Morrissey is. But this idea that the Smiths only did sad songs and that they're this depressive band is a thought process that for whatever reason really bothers me because the early Smith stuff, especially, I mean, pre-Queen is Dead, so, uh, you know, the the singles that would come before it and then the self-titled album and then Meet Us Murder, the Smiths are an angry band, and they are an aggressive band, and they feel a, a closer kinship to the post-punk side of things and the new wave side of things. You have a song like Still Ill, you know, England is mine and it owes me a living and Morrissey's going to spit in your eye. 
it's it drives me insane that for whatever reason songs like Asleep tend to take hold or or maybe just people aren't listening close enough and they chalk all of these songs that might have hints of depression and sadness and they just say oh well that's what the band is and Billy Bud is uh, a song that proves them wrong quite honestly I, I would agree. And you got to remember, though, like when you think about the Smith's biggest hits, like let's sit there and say the 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 quintessential. What's the number one song that you think of when you think of the Smiths? It usually would be something like there is a light that never goes out. You know, it'd be stuff like that. So you could sort of understand where they would get that reputation. But those that know, know stuff like London and, you know, stuff like Still Ill, you know, like Hand in Glove, like really great pop songs and such and rocking songs. So, you know, yeah, well, we say that and then we go into hold on to your friends, which, which is, is not not what I and, and, and you know what? It's perfect for that because we sit there. We start modeling with now my heart is full. Spring Hill Jim sort of speeds up the tempo a little bit. Billy Budd is a complete rocker. But then we bring it back down with a very nice uh, Alan White composition. Uh, the hold on to your friends. I saw Morrissey Would do you? this live in 2017 and it was it was very powerful. It's a song that I've. Ever since I heard it, which my experience with Vauxhall was there was one summer where I got my first record player and I was I was really into the Smiths. I mean, they were the only thing I was playing that summer it was the summer before I went into college. And uh, I had heard Speedway and I had heard Suedehead and I had heard Every Day is Like Sunday just in passing at some points. And I said, well, I'm at the record store. I see this Vauxhall and I album and Speedway's on it. So I, I might as well give it a shot. And I put it on the record table when I got home. And I mean, from the first track on, my mind was blown. But Hold On To Your Friends is one that has always really stuck with me. There are more than enough to fight and Just specifically, the simple line of don't feel so ashamed to have friends. It's a far cry from, you know, a song like How Soon Is Now, where Morrissey's talking about, you know, going to the club on your own and then leaving on your own and then you go home and you cry and you want to die. This feels like a very mature Morrissey, which is a nice change of pace. Right. And it's not something where he's sitting there saying, I did something wrong. I hurt these people where it's sort of him just trying to give advice about sort of, you know, like, you know, just chill a little bit about this, you know, hold on to those friends. You don't have to hold them too tightly or anything like that, but it's something where it's just, you know, him just giving up some good advice. I wish Morrissey wouldn't alienate everybody in his life other than Boz Bohr. I don't know how Boz has stayed on for close to 30 years now. I wish maybe a David Bowie or, you know, whoever else uh, Morrissey feels that he has been wronged by. I wish he would look within and remember, hold on to your friends because I think partially the reason that Morrissey has looked at the way he is is that whether it's his fault or not, he's there. You'd other than Nancy Sinatra in Boz, it's he doesn't have a lot of long-term friendships. It seems like. What about Stuart Linder? <laughs> How can I forget Stuart's? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 
the more you ignore what was Linder's official role can we, can we just get that on the table right now um I cannot answer that I'm sure I can you know he's done out. a lot of photos of Morrissey and such but like I'm gonna sit there I'm now now I'm curious because like I was trying to think about like what you know like who else would Morrissey have contact with you know it's not like Stuart you know it's not like Stephen Street is like you know like uh like someone where they had a uh, connection for a while, but let's see. Linder Sterling. <laughs> uh, British artist best known for her photography, uh, radical feminist homage and confrontational performance art. Okay. There you go. It seems like someone that would be friends with Morrissey. I mean, quite honestly, it makes a little bit of sense. That totally makes a lot more sense now. So I feel better now that I've learned something while going on Wikipedia during this podcast with you guys. So. The more you ignore me, the closer I get. You're wasting your time. The more you ignore me, the closer I get. You're wasting your time. Ignore me, the closer I get is what follows. Keith had mentioned early in the show that this is is Morrissey's hit. It is the lead single off of the album. It is the only Morrissey Earth Smith song to really achieve chart success in, chart success in the United States, where it reached number 46 on the Billboard Hot 100, and it was number one on the Modern Rock charts. Uh, it seems like it's one that MTV took a favor to for whatever reason. In a weird way, this is Morrissey's biggest hit, which does that f- seem strange to you that, you know, in terms of just the music business perspective, this is his legacy? It does, but doesn't for the fact that, you know, Morrissey has always been sort of critical of the recording industry as it was. So it's it's something where, you know, you definitely could feel that the the, you know, the record label was getting behind Morrissey with this song and the fact that this was another one of those MTV buzz bin videos that Morrissey had. So it definitely felt like there was something there. The problem was, you know, I remember that uh, the second single off the album was Now My Heart Is Full. I believe. And I remember seeing like there was a CD single for that, but it didn't necessarily get anywhere as much attention. And I don't know necessarily if they even did a music video for it. Now thinking about it, I've certainly never seen one if there is. Okay. So there we go. We, it's official now that, <laughs> Oh, hold on to your friends. The thing was the more you ignore me, the closer you get was all over everywhere. Hold on to your friends. I don't remember if they did a video at all, but the B side on that, I believe was the moon river cover. Which, which I you like know, quite a bit. I don't know where you stand on it. It's it's nice, but it's not something <laughs> where like, you know, like I always like getting the Morrissey singles and getting the B-sides and such. Because, I mean, like the Smiths and Morrissey were always very good, very talented B-sides artists, like where it'd be something where you'd want to get the singles just because of all the stuff that they had on there. You know, like if Interlude with Susie was on there, I would have been all about it. But, uh, yeah, having that as the second single wasn't something that's not necessarily a pop song or a grabber, you know, and like, you know, I remember, but I don't even think that was released as a single in the U.S. 
Like, so yeah, it's, it's understandable that this is like, wow, this is Morrissey's only U.S. quote unquote hit. I think Morrissey's fame, especially with people my age, is downplayed to an extent just because there's not the history or the aura that surrounds it. I mean, you have to remember in 1991, he not only plays Madison Square Garden, but he sells the venue out in minutes. And then at the 1991 Madison Square Garden show, he breaks the merchandise record for MSG that had previously been established by U2. He plays MSG again in 92. He's playing the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles and yet he's operating entirely on his own. And I think it's led to this misconception with people my age that Morrissey wanted to be like an indie artist, that he wanted to, I guess, you know, not, he didn't need the critical acclaim. He didn't need the chart topping success that he was comfortable doing this alternative thing. And I think really what Morrissey wanted more than anything was to be considered a pop artist and to be universally loved, critically acclaimed and commercially successful. But I also think he wasn't necessarily willing to play the recording artist type game no, because I think not. that he felt that he already had, you know, he already had multiple records with the Smiths, this being, you know, you know, he's had multiple solo records. So he didn't necessarily want to do all the things of fame that you have to do, you know, like a Wheatland's commercial do, do, uh, to the tune of Suedehead, you know, like so. I would like to I, see that, though. <laughs> it would be it would be quite delicious. It worked for Billy and the Boingers. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's something where, you know, it, it. I can see where just because of the way the recording industry, ha- the, the industry, the business of music basically made this his biggest hit because it was something where, OK, this is something where. You know, this is a very nice pop song. It's very enjoyable. Like I even had, I remember in 1994 driving around with friends of mine that I would refer to as jock assholes that enjoy this song greatly, you know, just because it was just a very, uh, just a wonderful little pop song. So, you know, but there was never necessarily the big follow-up. I mean, this is a great record. There are many great songs on this record, but I mean, when you think about, you know, singles, you know, singles, like Now My Heart Is Full, another great song. Is that necessarily something that you're going to hear on, you know, alternative radio, you know, twice an hour when you could be hearing, you know, stuff from Vitology? No. You mentioned the weird singles, the Now My Heart Is Full, the Hold On To Your Friends. Well, I look at the first track on side two, Why Don't You Find Out For Yourself, as a missed opportunity when it comes to Morrissey's singles. Don't break up my mistakes. I know exactly what they are And what do you do? Well, you just sit there I've been stabbed in the back So many, many times I don't have any skin But that's just the way it goes Now, Keith, we were at the Morrissey Show last year. We met up after the show. Uh, We were talking about just how much we enjoyed it, how good he sounded, and I don't know if you remember this interaction, but I said, yeah, it was really nice that he played Why Don't You Find Out For Yourself. That's my favorite Morrissey song. And you looked at me inquisitively, and you said, I "Hmm, I don't think that's the best song on the album. So why do you you hate this song, Keith? It's because I hate myself, Case. Uh, no, I, I it's 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 a fine song, but it's 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 one of those songs where I think after you know everything that we've had on the first side, I think this is the sort of the coming down stage of this. I mean, it's it's a nice little pop song. It's very very nice, very jangly, but it's not something where between this and the next song, it's something. The next three songs on this record are just sort of a 
they're they're a part of the record while good is potentially skippable or potentially not necessarily as good as the rest of the record because i think the record ends with three superb numbers like to me the lazy sunbathers is a better song than why don't you find out for yourself you know why don't you find out for yourself another thing that gets me about this is the fact that when I think about your arsenal, your arsenal has, we hate it when our friends get successful. And then it goes into certain people I know. This is sort of like that with the big hits being the more you ignore me, the closer you get another song with way too many words in it. Much <laughs> like uh, we hate it when our friends become successful leading into certain people I know, which sounds a lot like, why don't you find out for yourself? Well, that is that is a frame of view that I had not considered of comparing those two songs on your arsenal to these two songs. I, I will say in defense of why don't you find out for yourself, I think it is the most vulnerable and the most raw, the most peeled back Morrissey we get, where it is really a track driven by his voice and then this beautiful acoustic guitar that accompanies it. The line in the final verse, I've been stabbed at the back so many, many times I don't have any skin, and that's just the way it goes. I, you know, Morrissey gets away with a lot of things that I, I wouldn't normally tolerate for people. I mean, forget what he said on the person he might be off stage, but on stage, he's so dramatic and he's flailing around and he's he's got these, you know, at, at times these very effeminate shirts. Now he's wearing the baggy jeans, which bother me on just a, an unbelievable level. I don't know why Morrissey has dedicated himself to those, but there's something about him and a, a line like that that I think if anybody else said it, I would say, oh, that's so self-righteous. That's so dramatic. Get over yourself. But when Morrissey says it, I completely lock in. I completely agree. And I am completely dumbfounded by the writing that he is capable of. And I think 1994 Morrissey is at the height of his powers. And I think why don't you find out for yourself is his best work. I, I think the world of this song, I think it would have been a fitting second single on the album. I, I think lyrically, lyrically, it's a very good song. Musically, it's just there. You know, like there are some very good lyrics on the song, but it's something where I think after that first side with those first five songs, it's sort of like, okay, you know, but it's something where you're absolutely right. Lyrically, very, very good song, you know, like, and, and lyrically, this whole record is fantastic. Like there, there's not, not a skate about it, but then there's times where sort of the Venn diagram with the music that Boz and Alan were writing for Morrissey and the lyrics just make that, make a perfect song, you know? What follows, we get into a bit of a weird territory on the album. It starts with I Am Hated for Loving, a song that feels very stereotypical of Morrissey. It is very yes. much him being a martyr. I am hated for loving. I am hated for loving. Anonymous call, a poison pen, a brick in the small of the back again. I still don't belong. I like to think Morrissey is self-aware. I think he's saying this tongue-in-cheek. I, I would say my least favorite song on the album, but certainly worthy of being included on the record. I think it tells a story that is worthwhile. I would agree with that. You know, it's something where imagine if Boxers was here. You know, yes. like or, or like, sunny or swallow on my neck. There's so much from this time period that yes, uh, you know, imagine if those were on the album. 
yeah, it's it's something where I'm hated for loving is a fine song, but it's nothing nothing special. You know, it doesn't hit the high water marks that we see previously in this record or that we're going to see towards the end. You know, it's something where I, I listened to this record twice yesterday just to prepare for this podcast. Uh, I can swear on this podcast, right? I'm Please. Uh, I'm, I, I was more of a joke for the people <laughs> that don't prepare for podcasts because, you know, that, that sometimes happens. But anyway, like it's something where the thing that got me was how powerful the first five songs are and how powerful the last three songs are. And and, and Lifeguard Sleeping Girl Drowning is, is another one where it seems like typical, you know, OK, this is why I don't like Morrissey right here. Like just, you know, what, what's going on in the song? Like, you know, and it's not like it's, it's nothing graphic or anything about this girl drowning. You know, it's just a, just a song that Morrissey did. Lifeguard Sleeping Girl Drowning is Morrissey at his most spiteful because there's rumors of it being about his former assistant, Joe Slee. I would hate to be on the wrong side of Morrissey. I mean, you know, if you strip away my emotional attachment to the man, I would just hate to wrong him because it seems like he would ruin my life. And I was talking like Lifeguard Sleeping Girl Drowning certainly falls into that category. I I don't know. I don't know, though, Case. The the story about Andy Rourke getting sacked from the Smiths is one of my favorite things ever. (laughs) Like just basically a car, uh, a piece of paper on a car. You have been sacked from the Smiths. Goodbye or something to that that was you know i love watching it from afar because there is a an element of morrissey that is often uh, not talked about enough which is how funny he is and mm-hmm. uh something like the andy rourke thing is quite honestly hilarious life well, also yes go ahead also another thing case you have to remember is horrible people can be incredibly funny you know like yes, I, absolutely. I, I i've noticed that in life that sometimes some of the worst people that i know in the world are the people that make me laugh the mo- most not because anything that they're, they're saying is really stirring up any feelings but just because of the perspective that they have on things that is probably a great way to frame Morrissey from here on out is just that sometimes horrible people are, are quite funny. As yes. for the, the track, Morrissey's singing, not even singing, he's whispering the entire song. And the, it, the one reason I have this above I Am Hated for Loving is that it, this is a strangely emotional song for me. And it's one that he's never done live. I wouldn't really anticipate him on him ever doing it live. But on the record, in the context of the album... It's an impressive feat for him to whisper his way through the song. And then from there you go into Used to Be a Sweet Boy. Used to be a sweet boy I'm not to blame But something went wrong Something went wrong And I know I'm not to blame Something 
Ah, oh, God. I uh, almost dro- drove me to tears the first time I heard it live. Like, it's just something where it – there's not a lot of songs where Morrissey really talks about his childhood or not about any dead Manchurian children. Uh, so, like, this is this is a very heavy, you know, sort of a looking back and dealing with your parents song. And it's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful song on a number of levels. Just musically, it's just – it hits all those notes. It's like you could probably could probably listen to an instrumental of this and get emotional, but then the mute, the, the, the words behind it, you know, like blazer and a tie and a big, bright, burly smile. I mean, just descriptive, just beautiful. This is, this to me is another one, example of Morrissey as absolute best, just really just a, just a, a passion and, and a fire there with the words that he's saying here. And just, it, it, it's, it's, it's one of those songs where it's just, it hits every single button on the emotion level where it's something where you know like it, it makes me think of my dad and my dad had no thoughts about Morrissey whatsoever so I mean you know you know we've talked a lot about Morrissey just in our own life but we've never specifically talked about this album and I'm fascinated by the fact that with the exception of why don't you find out for yourself we seem to be right in line with our opinions because I was going to say not only are the lyrics beautiful but the the music in this song is stunning and it takes you on a journey and it's something that although his current musicians are incredibly talented and I and I, I think they probably get too much shit than they deserve if he was going to play a song like used to be a sweet point now I just I don't know if his current band would pull off the subtleties of this song if they would make it as tender as it needs to sound this well i don't know if it's a boss song or an allen song but it's certainly it's an allen song oh that makes total sense i mean it has the subtleties and the sweetness of an allen song and it is it is just an incredible listen and it's one of those that i don't necessarily consider when i'm thinking about the great morrissey tracks but then i hear it in the context of the album It, it just takes my breath away every single time and it's also, and you got to remember, though, it's sort of a, a quick song. I mean, it's it's something where it doesn't overstay its welcome, even with an instrumental part towards the end, you know, that makes it sound even more like it would be perfect for a Hallmark Network movie, you know, not a Christmas one, though, please, because oh, please they would no. have to Christmas it up a little bit. But in general, it, it's it's one of those songs where you're just like, wow, that's fucking awesome like that's just it's a it's a breathtaking song in a number of regards you know you know where it's sort of a someone confronting their past and dealing with it and that's another part about it that i like it he's not sitting there being maudlin about that you know and at the end where i'm not to blame you know like where he sort of you know comes to a conclusion about everything that happened so you know it's 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 a wonderful wonderful song Days ago, but they didn't know the lazy sunbathers, the lazy sunbathers. Is the lazy sunbathers Morrissey's most underrated song? It's up there. It's easily up there. It's it's always been one of my favorites because the fact that it's it's a wonderful gap between Sweet Boy and the album closer of Speedway, just because it's just something where it's a nice nice song and it it, it sort of is a throwback to some Smith songs, you know. 
you know, basically threats of atomic war, which, you know, in 1994, it wasn't like it wasn't like 19, you know, it wasn't like 1984 in the fear of the atomic bomb or anything like that. But just something where, you know, it's a very nice, beautiful, it's, it's another another very nice, beautiful song, very casual. And it just it's it's sort of from the ultra drama of used to be a sweet boy to these people who are just, you know, spending their days existing you know um it's 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 a nice sort of look at morrissey has always been very good at looking at groups of people as long as they're not problematic statements oh absolutely you you think about just i mean morrissey's catalog is so extensive and i'm sure if i cared about any artist as much as i care about him i'd be able to say oh well they have so many underrated songs but you look at morrissey's catalog with songs like my dearest love or sunny or i've changed my plea to guilty like there's so many hidden gems along the way but at least those songs have been played live at some point. The Lazy Sunbathers has never been played live. And as someone, like wow. I said at the top, that really at this point is is in it for Morrissey's set list more than anything because I'm so fascinated by his, his live shows. How is this song not on the list that drives me insane when you think about World Peace is None of Your Business or even a song that I think is, is actually quite a good song like Munich Air Disaster. He's been playing that at every show for four years now. The Lazy Sunbathers has never been given love, and that drives me insane. I think this is one of his best works ever. I, you know, but it's something where you never necessarily you can get in the mind of the artist, but it's sometimes a scary place to be in. Uh, but it could be something where you sit there and say, "Oh, you know, the never-ending sym- symphonies is being played multiple times on this tour. Wouldn't it be nice to hear the Lazy Sunbathers?" Or you know, it just it's 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 a, a lovely song. Why it's never played live, I don't know. But like that's the one thing about the Morrissey concert experience. He might not show up, but like the set list that he provides, given the you know the breadth of his career. I mean, we're talking about someone that's been putting out records since, you know, the early 1980s and he's not going to sit there and shy away from one period or anything like that, you know, like, you know, and he finds ways to reinvent songs like the, the meat is murder that you heard over the last five years in concert is different from the meat is murder. I have from a Barcelona double, uh, double vinyl bootleg that I purchased in 1993, you know? So it's, it's it, the Morrissey experience is definitely, you know, that was a thing when we when when we went to go see Morrissey at the Rafinia. I was surprised how many people were there. I really was because it's something where it's not necessarily like I remember telling people that week, like being like, oh, you know, I'm going to see Morrissey. Oh, I mean, hell, I went to a sh- I went to a show that afternoon. I went to Riot Fest that afternoon to see one of my favorite bands of all time, Avail, play their first Chicago show since 2002. And it was marvelous. It was fantastic. It was one of the best. Sh- you know, it was a wonderful experience. But then I got the heck out of there, <laughs> went to Ravinia and saw an even better show in Morrissey so we were talking during the show we were Facebook messaging back and forth about y'all what, what's he going to close with because he had he had scrambled the set list for that I, that night I really did not know what was coming next and we both came to the conclusion wouldn't it be great if he ended the night with Speedway which is the closing track on the album it is a work of art all of the rumors keeping me grounded I never said that they were completely unfounded And all those lies 
I, I, I would, you know, I, I feel bad because I am much older than you, but you seem to have the same opinions as an old man. So I, I, I feel more bad about you having those opinions than me having those opinions. Yes, so no, don't, don't think that you have juvenile thoughts. I just have aged I, rapidly in my life and I'm not sure. Why. I would like to think some of them are juvenile case. <laughs> so, uh, Speedway is a tremendous album closer bar none, just sort of, uh, you know, everything, you know, we started the record on a really reflective note. We've had reflections of past, our childhood and everything else. And Speedway is basically where we lay everything on the table. It's something where uh, it's just a God, it's it's such an amazing song. It's one of those songs where it's just, you know, basically finger pointing at its best, you know, something where, you know, basically you might want to hold on to your friends, but you have to make sure that they know that you never said that things were unfounded. Like to me, it's something where I, I had a one of my my best friend during uh during 1994 was my buddy greg and uh, greg unfortunately passed away uh today is uh, as we recording this right now this would have been greg's uh, maybe 40 something birthday and at his service they played speedway and it just got me all the feels because i remember the first time listening to this after picking up this record at tower records in chicago at, at on a midnight and listening cranking this up up on the way home and just being blown away by this album closer where basically it is something where it doesn't end the record on a low note it ends it on the highest of notes where it just ends at something so powerful something where you know anyone that sits there like you mentioned before and sits there and says you know i like the smiths but i don't like morrissey this is one of those songs you should need to check out because this is definitely morrissey's one of morrissey's finest hours and this ends a very, very excellent Morrissey record in the best way possible. You know, like, you know, whether it's him going after the press or going after, you know, our author Johnny Rogan, you know, this is something where he just puts it all on the table and the band is there with him the entire time, pushing him all the way and just, you know, just, you know, it addresses things and maybe even, you know, maybe even when we talk about being a problematic Morrissey fan in the year 2020, it's one of those things where even then some of the stuff resonates, you know, and all those lies, written line, twisted lies. Well, they weren't lies. They weren't lies. So it's something where it, Morrissey, as we know it, case is an enigma and this song does not help with the <laughs> enigma at all. There's no other song like this. The structure is completely different. The sounds are completely different. I have not in person seen Morrissey do this live, but I have spent now a good chunk of my life consuming visual and audio bootlegs of Morrissey shows. I think this, whether it be the version that's on Introducing Morrissey, the version uh, where he sings Asleep Halfway Through on 25 Live, uh, there's just countless versions. There's a version from Night 2 of his Hollywood Bowl show in 2017 I really like. This is his best live song, in my opinion. Keith, you've seen Morrissey a ton of times in person. Where does this rank in the pantheon of great Morrissey live experiences? It, it has always been great. I just wish the problem is, you know, he sort of starts it after the chainsaw. I wish that 
we would get the full song on here. And the last few times I've seen him, it's something where they'll turn off the lights and then uh, his keyboardist will be singing the rest of the song in Spanish. And as much as Spanish might be one of the romantic languages, I would rather hear this in English. You know, and I'm, and that's sad because we've been talking about Morrissey for an hour now, and now I've said something problematic. So see what happens when you it's, talk about Morrissey. It just it just it it, it bubbles up like this. So, the, the but no, it's with it's with it's, the Spanish it, intro, the Spanish outro is that it's fine, but it's not the outro. It is not no. Morrissey bearing his soul in the outro. Right. Yeah. It's it's very different in that that respect. So yeah, it's something where, oh man. But it's it's still it's still one of my favorite Morrissey songs. I still absolutely love it. You know, I think this is a fantastic album closer. Especially you know the sequencing that we talked about earlier on on this record is something where it's just amazing because you have the used to be a sweet boy, which is this lovely, lovely, beautiful song. Lazy sunbathers. It. it it's a little bit more poppy, but it, I wouldn't say it's super poppy. As we said, it's an underrated gem. And then this is just basically throwing all the throwing the kitchen sink in in the Chicago street fight, so to speak. Ooh, yes, way to tie that in at the end. So that is the end of Vauxhall and I. Keith, I ask you the impossible question: If you had to rate Vauxhall and I out of ten, what are you, what in your journalistic mindset? What are you giving this album? Uh, I'm going to give it. Uh, an eight point five. Really? Yeah. I, I mean, it would go it, higher. I, 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 actually, doing this podcast, my ranking has has diminished a little bit oh, more no, so for sorry. some of the songs that are on there. <laughs> oh no! I mean, I mean, I, I mean, it's 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 one of his best records, bar none. But I think it, I think Morrissey records are sort of like Smith's records, where I sort of always have, you know, uh, two or three favorites. But they change every so often. You know, for a long time, my favorite Smith's record was uh, Queen is Dead. Uh, But for the last 10 years, it's probably been strange ways. Here we come. You know, it's something where just the taste change and everything else. I think this is a great record. And I think this is, you know, I think, as you mentioned before, the two singles he put out after this, uh, the Sonny and Boxers were very good pop songs and, and sort of a return to the old Morrissey and becoming a singles artist. And then that sort of was lost after this. So. But I, I, I think it's I think it's a great record. I would definitely think it's one of his all time records. I think if someone told me I, I'm curious about this Morrissey fellow because of what I've been reading about him on the news, uh, what what can not that he would be on the news anytime soon. And hopefully God, not. hopefully, God not. bless. I hope nothing happens in the next week where we we, we can't use this now because, you know, <laughs> can you imagine what Morrissey said about covid? But uh, but but it'd be something where if someone asked me, what's the Morrissey record that you would recommend? recommend or the the studio album that you would recommend the most i would sit there and say it's this by far you know like i think that there's other high points of morrissey's career like here's a refusal i think is is a fantastic record ringleader of the tormentors another very good i think that's a highly underrated record you know uh low in high school i wasn't the biggest fan of that record but you actually inspired me to listen to that a little bit more it's aged really well i think you know, but that 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 to me seems like a million years ago. So, so can you imagine how old I think Fox Hall and I is? You know, you know, I will say, I, 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 oh, go ahead. I would say, though, that this is probably the definitive Morrissey record out of all the ones that are out there and definitely something I would recommend this and Years of Refusal because Years of Refusal to me is sort of like the merging of the year arsenal and Vox Hall and I era, eras. I will say for me, 
It is my favorite album of all time. There are wow. albums like the Front Bottoms Talent of the Hawk, which I've talked about on the show that I love dearly. Silver Jew's Bright Flight, I think, is one of the most important recordings I've ever come across. But ultimately, my music taste is defined by Vauxhall and I. I think it is the greatest record I've ever heard. Every song, although not every song is great, I think every song belongs on this album with the way it's sequenced. I think it tells a beautiful story. It is a 10 out of 10 for me. I think it is a work of art, and I highly recommend it. Now, Keith, normally I ask people who needs to hear this album and why, but it, if people know me, I've they've ignored my plea for them to listen to this, but they've they've heard me talk about this album. I want to ask you instead... Why, after all these years, after all of the things he said, why do you keep on coming back to Morrissey? Because I think he's written some of the finest musical compositions known to man. Like, I, I really think in terms of songwriters, he's up there in my top five of all time. And I think he always has been a very interesting artist. And I say that before he became incredibly problematic. Uh, you know, there, there's there's a number of reasons. You know, I, I think, you know, growing up being a, you know, awkward teen, uh, you know, that didn't really have that many friends, you know, and just, you know, the power of his music when you know, it was just me and my friend Greg driving in around a car in Chicago, going to various record stores like the Morrissey spoke to me, you know, a lot more than other people do. He might not speak to me that much now or I might I might still listen, but it's 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 not the same as it was before. So, yeah, that uh, that, that weirdly uh, just caught me at, a, at, a, at an emotional spot there because ultimately uh, Morrissey is someone who like you said I think he's created some of the greatest music of all time I the first time I saw Morrissey in November 2017 I I rank that is a weird ranking but I think that is the most fun I've ever had that night with the company I was with the places we went and saw that was the best night I've ever had and it was built around seeing Morrissey and being in the presence of a legend and I hope as he goes along that he spends you know assuming there's a world of live music that he spends as much time on the road performing as he can and that he spends his time away from the press or saying dumb things because it makes my life more difficult but ultimately Morrissey is a complicated musician someone who could not be painted with a broad stroke he is someone that embodies shades of gray and ultimately I think music is better with him than without him, and I think the world is far more interesting with him in it, with the world orbiting around Morrissey's universe in a way, than it would be without him existing at all. So I'm glad he's here. I'm glad he's making music, even if I'm not a dog on a chain, was a, a frustrating album to listen to, because there's some good stuff in there, and there's some just abhorrent stuff in there. But that's for another podcast. Keith, before you go, where can the people find you? What do you have to plug? You know, that's the weirdest thing, because going into here, I'm usually used to coming on this podcast and talking about sweaty men, but now I'm just, <laughs> just talking about problematic men. So this is the first podcast I've done in a while where I really have nothing to plug. I mean, definitely I'm on the Twitter, uh, the Facebooks and the Instagrams as uh, Keith Lipins at Keith Lipinski. I'm also on Peloton as Dr. Keith AAW uh, for all you Peloton fans out there. Uh, hopefully I'll 
I'll, I'll get a Morrissey ride in one of these days. But uh, no, uh, Case, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate hearing your old man views on the old coot known as Morrissey. And I, 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 I'm going to take back my eight. 8.5 review and given an 8.75 but oh, I, how I, I would sit there and say that when it comes to work rate this was a high high record and I think really like this was the golden age of Morrissey but I mean the thing with Morrissey is who knows what can happen next and and I say that partly with We've said the word problematic on this podcast way too many times with hope that eventually Morrissey hopefully figures out that he's done wrong and moves on and gives us some more great music to look forward to. I mean, I know he is he is getting up there in ages, you know, so like but I, I still think that we, we you and I both know that he can definitely go. And, you know, I, I hope that whatever record he does next you know this will be his first record of his 60s so think about that like here's a 60 year old who's still performing that's still alive let's let's celebrate that although with covid who knows what's going to happen you know but i covid's a fantastic time to get into morrissey kids so i if you've ever felt isolated uh morrissey is the artist to go to and i have a feeling a lot of people are experiencing that right now i hope morrissey writes the ship that's been wronged i think that would be a beautiful way to end his journey and this brings us to the end of the article albums podcast as always you can find me on both twitter and instagram at underscore case low c-a-s-e-l-o-w-e and you can find the podcast itself on Instagram at Art School Albums. And I thank you for listening to the most problematic episode we've done so far. This has been Morrissey's Fox Hall and I.